I'm Dana Harris, Editor-in-Chief at IndieWire, and this is IndieWire Influencers. My guest today is Kyle Patrick Alvarez. He is a director who's made three films, Easier with Practice, COG, and most recently, The Stanford Prison Experience, which is now out on DVD. And one of the things that I find fascinating about your career is that all of these projects in their own way seem kind of impossible. And then that's, that's, that's the same. I mean, indie films are yeah. always impossible, so that's nothing necessarily special there. But it's a different kind of impossible. And the fact that you based Easier with Practice on a GQ article, which is not always the easiest thing to do, optioning yeah. pieces. COG was uh, based on a... Uh, David Sedaris story, which is like impossible in its own right, because he's never optioned anything to anyone. Anyone, yeah. And Stanford Prison Experience is something that I know a lot of people have tried to make over the years, and you found a way in. So what's your secret? <laughs> and, and now, even though I can't say what it is, I'm involved with a script that has been trying to get made for 35 years. Stanford was 15, and now the script is older than I am. And I'm like, this so you is, just kind of keep setting I'm the bar glut- higher. I'm, I'm a glutton for punishment in a lot of ways. I mean, I think it's... um. It's partly by chance. Like, I don't necessarily think like, oh, what's the difficult way? But, you know, the Sedaris one was definitely really difficult because not only was it getting Sedaris to agree to it, but it was also like making a movie that wasn't really a David Sedaris movie. So mm-hmm. it was like, people, you know, we send it out to Finding Zeros and they're like, oh, great, a David Sedaris movie, kind of expecting like a cute, fun character dramedy. And instead, it's like kind of a cynical, dark film. And, which is why it's such a great story. <laughs> <laughs> which is why I liked it and why also why David said yes, because it wasn't really going to be him. It wasn't going to be his writing. And um, and then with Easier with Practice, it was definitely like, oh, I didn't even know how to option something. Like I didn't know. Well, let's, And I, ha- I didn't even have a lawyer. So I did that by myself. Well, talk, well take me back to that so you know you made easier with practice in 2009 um that was your first feature was that your first film had you made any shorts before that had i've you- done some shorts in college but hopefully no one will ever see that <laughs> um because they were i mean I, I feel like college is sometimes i i am on i judge these like college student short films things you know i do a lot and sometimes it's like you see these ones that the production value is so incredible you can tell they put a lot of money into them but the stories and you almost like when you're in college, you should be making mistakes. I mean, I guess you got your occasional people that make like some brilliant student sure. film in college, but it's like, you sh- I, I try not to think, Oh, I'm going to make this for something that's going to like resemble my career right. in the future. And, um, and so I feel like I made a lot of mistakes then, but I, I don't, you know, I, I struggle with short films. I, I, and, and that I admire short films so much. I've never, I would love to make one. I just, it's such a different, to me, it's a totally different language. It's it's really tough. So, um, where, where you go, did you go to film school? Yeah, I went to film school in Miami at University of Miami. I moved to LA right when I graduated. I think I was in town for. So the short films didn't put you off uh, making movies. You you were still convinced <laughs> that you wanted to do it. I did. It was, but I didn't think I. I don't think I knew then really what. I hadn't really asked myself. Oh wait, what kind of movie do I really want to make? It was like, oh, I loved Peter Jackson. Like I loved like Brain Dead and and Heavenly Creatures. So I like made some genre things, but I wasn't really asking myself like oh wait what what is it that I actually have a point of view on like what's coming from me and I started working as an assistant out here what year was that that was I graduated 2005 and so I probably started working as an assistant I worked for Warren Beatty probably like that had to be a trip that was really interesting it was like a good year maybe a year and a half of my life or so um it was fascinating he wasn't making a film at the time um he just finished one but it was, uh, so it wasn't, I wasn't getting as much film experience, but as I would have liked, but it was at the same time, it was like a really incredible 
you know, it was, I mean, it was, it was, a, I'm glad I did it. Okay. So, I mean, and, and I promise I'm not trying to make this, this is your life, but I'm just, but, <laughs> I don't mind. but, I, but I wanted to, but I wanted to understand. So, okay. As an assistant to Warren Beatty, how did you get that job? I, it, through the weirdest series of circumstances. I mean, not as weird as like bumping into him on the street and saying, Hey, can I have a job? It was a, a woman I knew who was friends with him from some, uh, you know, like through a, like a science or political thing, something totally different from film. It was just like, oh, would you want to meet him? And I'm having lunch with him, and he always wants to meet new filmmakers. And we sat down, and I was having lunch. I was basically just a fly on a wall for their lunch. And uh, by the end of the lunch, I realized it was a job interview. <laughs> I, oh, hadn't, wow. I hadn't really known it. And so so then it was like, okay, I remember he said, he was like, could you, so tomorrow morning, you'll, you'll, I'll let you, uh, you know, one of my guys will call and let you know where I'm going to be. And I was like, oh, okay. And I remember I got there then that next morning. It was that he was recording something, some ads or something or doing, you know, TV right. news interviews. And someone from the team was like, oh, did you bring the coffee? And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. Is this oh. a, I was like, is this a job? <laughs> was like, oh. And then that led to, you know, a year or so of, of work. But it where it motivated me was it wasn't, I wasn't doing stuff in film and I had had a, a PA job before that. And um, at a production company and I just sort of felt like, oh, none of this is feeling like it's connecting to me actually making something. And so I found that's when I read that GQ article, it kind of opened my brain up of, okay, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to pursue? What am I going to make? So well, did I'm, you just stumble on the GQ article just because you were flipping through the magazine? And yeah. Condé Nast, actually, I just thought of this yesterday because they just shut down details yesterday, mm -hmm. but they had another magazine. I forgot what it was called. Similar deta details. And someone had given me like a gift subscription mm -hmm. and Condé Nast shut it down after like six issues. So they just started sending me GQ to fill out the rest of my subscription. Oh. So, I mean, this all connects to the whole, the randomness of sure. how these things come about. If not, I don't think I would have ever picked up a GQ magazine with Justin Timberlake on the cover. I sure. And, um, I think one night I was like, oh, I didn't have anything to read. And so I just like picked it up. And uh, there was this like four page article in there that Davey Rothbart wrote. And I wasn't really, I was familiar with Found Magazine, but not him and the stories he'd sure. written. And um, when I read it, I just sort of, I was like, oh, I, I saw what it was. Like I read it and I was like, I see how this would work as a movie. And I see how, it, where I feel like I'd be bringing my point of view on it. And I got really excited about it. And so that was the first time I crossed that line of like, oh, this would make a cool movie to, I should see if I should try to find a way to make this. Granted, it took, you know, almost four years from then. But, but that, I mean, that's, I mean, that's really kind of an amazing thing. I mean, it's like, obviously any filmmaker, if you're going to make something, you've got to have a whole lot of forward motion to make anything happen. Yeah. But for you to be sitting there, it's like, you know, you're this, you know, this guy who's working, you know, assistant and... Hollywood and you really, you know, you made a couple of short films that you think that even you think are, aren't that special. <laughs> and you're seeing this article and saying, yes, that can be a movie. I mean, that to me is really interesting. It's like, what is, you know, is, is that, you know, is that something that your parents taught you? I mean, I'd never felt it before, really. I mean, that was, I think why I'd never felt like confidence in terms of like, oh, I know how to do this. Like I knew I wanted to make a movie, but I thought I'd maybe make some shorts or like a web series or something with friends. And I knew I needed to start dipping my toes into it. But then when I read that, I was like, oh, I, I know what this is. I felt motivation. But I mean, definitely having supportive parents. I, whenever I meet anyone who's like an art, artist or a filmmaker or something that, you know, they talk about struggles with their parents or their parents not understanding what they're doing. I just think, oh, my God, like I'm, I'm really close with my parents. And I'm so they've always been, I think, because they are immigrants and came mm -hmm. from came from very little uh, uh, refugees, actually. But, you know, that they uh, your parents were uh, from Cuba. Yeah, so they when they came over really young, and I think that they've had this attitude of, um, it's interesting, you see when you meet other immigrant, you know, first generation sure. kids, it's usually one or the other. It's the parents were like, 
we brought you here to this country so that you could like become a doctor and have a great career or it's the exact opposite which is we brought you here so you could do whatever you wanted and i'm really grateful and you got door number two i got door number two (laughs) um which i'm really grateful for that happened to line up with what i wanted you know that i also you know that i was like this is why we worked hard so that you could be in this place where you can go to school to study what you want. And um, to say you have a lot of modesty inherently makes you immodest. But, right. you know, I mean, I don't think I'm the kind, I wasn't like, I didn't move to LA when I was like, I'm going to make a movie in the next three years and it's going to happen and I'm going to do this. And then my next film's going to be, the, I didn't have like that. I had a plan. I knew I wanted to make movies, but I didn't engineer. The, but, yeah, the, but, but easy on the hubris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was. And so reading that then it was like, oh, what am I? But, you know, then I had a friend who was working as assistant to an agent so I called him and I was like, look, what would be, what should I do first to get this option? And I think I was reading the, uh, the Polish brothers book on like mm-hmm. how to do this. Yep, and yep. I think they talked a little bit about that. And they, he was just like, well, look, why don't I like make a call from the agency, even though I'm just an assistant to his agent and just find out if the rights are available and if he'd be willing to talk. And what worked to my benefit is that Davey Rothbart was like, is like the greatest guy. I mean, sure. it was genuinely a stroke of good luck because I think had he been just someone that was like, oh, I don't know, or I don't care, or even had optioned it to me, but wasn't really engaged by it. I don't. I felt really motivated by the fact that Davey was excited about it. and Davey So was, they responded immediately to say, hey, like we should talk yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't really remember because it was a while ago, yeah. but it took, a, I mean, it took months. Right. Um, because, and you know, and I sort of said to Davey, I was like, look, I haven't done this before. I don't totally know what I'm doing, but I want to do this. And this is why I want to do it. And, um... Unfortunately, he just has that kind of attitude. You know, I've only ever, the only other people I've ever really met that are as like, that have that, you know, the Duplasses are like that too, where they're like, yeah. well, then you should just, just, you should just go do it. Yeah. How can I be, how can I help you? Yeah. Like, well, you should just go do it. And like, then having that from someone I'd never even met in person, then that was extra motivation. And then sharing the article with people and saying, hey, I think I want to do this with it. It just all started getting, started to feel a little bit more real. And then you kind of are challenging yourself with it. At this point, then I'd, Given two weeks' notice, I'd left my job. <laughs> I mean, I was doing I was doing video editing to like make ends meet, but it was sort of like, a, oh God, I just quit working for like one of my idols, <laughs> one of like like a, you know one of the like Hollywood icons to like go make a movie. I probably should go make this movie. <laughs> I always tell people I'm not, I don't ever encourage people to leave their jobs, but uh, you know, some uh, never always have a backup plan, and I did. But uh, jumping off the deep end helped make me kind of have to do it, right? And it sounds like you also had the encouragement of like, okay, well, Davey likes this. and Yeah. And he was really support. He was like, do what you need to do with it. Like change me, put do it, you know, which I had a similar, Sedaris was similar in the same way, which was just like, just go make this like as a movie. And then fortunately him being gracious too, because it took me four years to get it going. And, you know, it was a year option with extensions and started to cost money that I didn't necessarily have. So, you know, I had to ask a lot of favors before there was even step two. Right. Um, and so I was really, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was weird. It's weird to think back on it. I hadn't thought of it in a long time, but it definitely took, I took every movie. I think you look back on it and you're like, Oh God, what was I thinking? That could have been such a disaster. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're like, not like, what was I thinking? I shouldn't have done it. Just like, how did I not? It's like, you look back and see it's, I don't know. I'm not even a golfer, but I can think of that analogy of you know the golf courses where you don't see the sand traps yep. until you look back and then you can see them all. Or it's the other way around. I can't remember. But either, <laughs> either way, either way, it's that thing where you're like, after you finish the movie, you're like, oh my God, it was so close to falling apart, like every step of the way. And you and, just, and you, and thank God you didn't have the full perspective. Yeah. You almost need to have blinders on, I think. I think that's the, there's too many moving pieces. I mean, that's what makes film different than everything else out there is it requires a lot of people and it requires money and it requires 
equipment and all of these things. I mean, it's the same struggles painters used to have, you know, hundreds of years ago to afford inks, you know, I sure. mean, it's, it's always something that's always existed in some forms, but you can't really short of some special, unless you're like Shane Carruth, you can't like really just sit in a room and like make a film, you know, and right. even, and even he now is going, not, you know, he's, clearly he's not. going down a huge path. I mean, he has like the coolest cast ever for that new thing. And so it's um, for the new movie. So it's one of those things where it's, it needs so many other people. And that's always, I'm connecting that to this idea that you kind of, but you still have to have those blinders on because you're sort of bringing all those people with you. You're, you're, and you, you know. don't want to feel the full weight of the responsibility because then you can't move. No, you have to be naive. You have to be, you have to be. I mean, that was jumping ahead of it with Stanford. It was like, oh my God, you know, and I'm sure we'll get to yeah. it. But it was like every day on that movie, it was like, I would look back and be like, how do we just do that? Like, how do we survive this? But that's, I think, but you know what you hear? $200 million movies, people have those same feelings. I think that's just what the chaos of like production and, and what it takes to say, because we are talking about hubris versus sure. modesty. It does, you do, the thing I had to get over was, and it's why I always encourage filmmakers, people who want to be filmmakers, you have to, you have to, you have to say, I think I, I want people to spend time with something I've made. It sounds like a weird thing, but you have to, it's a little bit of that. Like you have to be able to accept that to be confident, I sure. think. And it's weird because it doesn't come naturally to me to say, no, I'm going to make, I think whatever I have to say is worth a hundred minutes of your time. And that's really, that's, that's like, a bold statement. It really is. And it was really hard for me to say it. It's like one of those things that like, if you were in some like life coach or something, you'd have to like say to yourself in the mirror, like I am beautiful. You know, <laughs> like that would be the thing from safe. What is it that she right, has right, to say yes, at yeah. the end and she's crying? Like you kind of have to be able to say that because if you can't, um, you're going to be doubting yourself too much. And you don't want to, you want to doubt yourself like afterwards when you look back and you go, wait, how did I not doubt myself as opposed to in the moment? So tell me, okay, so on, on the Stanford front, it's like, how did that come together? So it was like you said, it was a script that people have been trying to make for over a decade. Yeah, I mean, arguably 40 years. I mean, so the experiment- Yeah, because it was 71, right? The yeah, the experiment happened in 71. And, you know, Phil, Dr. Zimbardo has all these stories of, you know, he was like, every few years they would like fly me down to L.A., and take me out to dinner and there'd be some new screenwriter. At one point, it was the guy who wrote In the Heat of the Night. Mm -hmm. I always forget his name. Um, you know, at one point, it was, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio before he did Titanic. Um, so after Gilbert Grape, his dad had been a student of Zimbardo's. And so they started a project. It was going to be DiCaprio okay. and Benicio Del Toro in the 90s. I totally remember this because... Yeah, there was a report. There was a, there when, was I was a, a, when I was a reporter, we wrote about because I, when I was looking at stuff, I, was like, I thought... Wasn't there already versions of this? And oh, then yeah. I realized it's like, no second, it's been reported so many times yeah. though. And that one never happened. And then um, this producer, Brent Emery, had always been fascinated about with it, got the rights. He was working for Maverick, Madonna's company mm -hmm. at the time, got the rights, brought it to Chris McCory, who came on as a producer initially and brought Tim Talbot on board. Mm -hmm. So Tim started writing it and then Chris got involved as a director and then they were fully cast. I mean, you can, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people, sometimes up until we were making the film, the IMDb right. page still had like, sure. I think still had like Ben McKenzie and, and Charlie Hunnam listed on it. And, uh, and, you know, and they were making on a much bigger scale budget wise. Uh, it was a much bigger movie, but they took it to Cannes and did the whole, they had big posters at Cannes with all the actors' names on it. And That's did, okay. That I remember. Oh all yeah. This. They did all the fundraising <laughs> and then, you know, I don't know exactly, nothing bad happened. I think it was around the time of the writer's strike. And I think, uh, Chris went on to go, uh, produce Valkyrie. Mm -hmm. So I think it was like all of that, all that kind of came out about at the same time. It was during the writer's strike. And then and then Chris got so brought into, you know, I don't want to speak for him, but, you know, then from then on, he was in the incredible, like, Tom Cruise world and sure. doing really great work. And, and, um, and so I think it was one of those things where the movie, you know, 
sort of slipped away, Maverick shut their doors and Brent held on to the rights when he left Maverick, when Maverick closed down or when he sure. left Maverick, held on to the rights and held on to the rights to the script. And then to connect this whole idea of the randomness of how things happen, um, Brian Garrity, who was the star of Easier with Practice, mm-hmm. was dating a girl who was Brent's wife, who's also a filmmaker's really best, like one of her best friends. They were all sitting at dinner and Brent, I think, was like, oh, yeah, that Stanford script. Remember, I'm sure Brian had been young enough to audition for it. And he was like, oh, wait, Kyle would be really good for like, you know, my buddy Kyle did this movie. And so Brian sent it to me that night, I think, or the next morning. And then I read it and then met with them the next day and was like, look, how let's talk about why it didn't happen for 15 years. And what could I bring to this to help make it happen now? And so that's sort of how to your first question of how it came about. I think I was the first person on that movie and I say this actually with all due respect to to, to Chris because he was he had a very different approach than I sure. did, you know, very I think different aesthetic and, and b- different ambitions with it. Um, but I think I was the first person that kind of said, no matter what we do, no matter how big you make this movie, it's a bunch of guys trapped in a basement, and it's never going to change. If we're staying, if the whole no, it has aim, to be, and that's what I loved about the script was they didn't embellish they weren't doing the thing that das experiment had done which was turning it into sci-fi and and then even then when you do the research you realize all the dialogue it, it had a lot of um it was grounded in the what really happened more than anything i've you know what appealed to you about it i mean like what specifically appealed to you about the story the story when i read it it was a few things at first that appealed to me i mean it's of course as a director you want to say oh my god the story first and foremost but really it was like oh wait this is like a huge cast and i love casting and you rarely see low budget indies with 25 leads. Sure. Like that just, if ever, you know? And um, and then I was excited by the aesthetic challenges. I felt like, you know, my first two movies had been really naturalistic. I mean, Easier Practice has some like really long takes and ambitious stuff in it, but um, COG was just like, shoot it and move on, you know, <laughs> because we were, it, was, it was such a tight schedule and budget. But I felt with this one, you had to have some ambition if you were going to be in this hallway the whole time. And I thought it would give me an opportunity to do more concept shooting which i'd always wanted to do and uh but then the story to me was really fascinating i thought it was really well structured in the script i thought it was one of those scripts that you read and even though it was really long it was like 140 pages or something mm-hmm. when you're reading through it you don't even realize like all the machinations were there in terms of how you see the people evolve and what the characters are doing and even though there was all these people there was a through line and i thought that's what tim had done with it really strongly like his first step 10 years earlier or how whatever had been he just wrote it all out. He wrote out the entire experiment and it was like a 300 page script. Like sure. I've seen it. And then he started chipping away at it and it was really about sculpting what the through line was going to be and structured around what really happened, which was these kids who started to fall out, you know, the experiment. And so when I read it, I just thought, oh, this is the right way to do this. And the story actually really, especially as I started researching it, even though there'd been the, the DOS experiment and the rem- the American remake, the experiment, and there was a general familiarity with the experiment, I felt like it was such an important part that there was an iconography to it that hadn't been done yet, you know, that I, and I felt it deserved that. You know, I mean, and that's up to other people to decide whether it deserved it or not. In terms, I mean, there's still plenty of people who are like, haven't we seen this movie already? And I knew we'd face that. But I think once people have seen it, they realize that we were doing something, I think, wildly different. It's, those. you know, it's... It's an extremely discomforting movie to watch. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and, and it's only a partially testament to the fact that you're, you know, obviously claustrophobic because yeah. you say it's a hallway. It's, you know, it's school, you know, it's a school, it's school rooms that are being treated as prisons, but it's, you know, the kind of um, mental uh, sadism, you yeah. know, that is going on it, it is, is so intense. What was that like in terms of the shooting? Because I can't, you know, I have to believe that that they didn't emerge unscathed. No, the shooting was 
really, and, and the actors love to talk about this because like, the shooting was, I think for them, actually really fun. I mean, it was, it was, that came out of a combination of things. I really worked hard against uh, there being kind of any, I, I like working with method actors, but I, I was really careful to not cast, you know, the guys that, I would have, I had lunch with, you know, hundreds of people over like a year, you know, anyone who was young and exciting or had done something interesting, or, you know, I would try to meet with even before auditioning and a lot of times um, to try to get to know them. And a lot of them, you know, they sit down and they go, oh, well, I studied Meisner and this is what I like to do. And I want to, I can't wait to get in there. I want to sleep in the cells. And, <laughs> and I just thought this isn't the movie for that. This is, it's already going to be there. We don't need to, we don't need to engage it. So there were a few even really talented guys who I just felt were going to be almost too motivated. You know, I mean, that as a compliment to them, but, and had this been like my other films where there's one or two people per scene, but this is 20 people in every scene and we're shooting 15 pages a day and there isn't room for anyone to get lost in it. And so I really focused on finding the people who were really grounded, experienced, who had been on set a lot before. Mm -hmm. You know, these were people, these were all actors, almost everyone in the film. I think the least, the person who had been on set the least was Jack Kilmer. And mm -hmm. he had, you know, just started in Palo Alto and had grown up on sets, obviously, with both sure. his parents being actors. So um, it was, everyone was used to being on set, probably much more so than I was. And this wasn't by design. A lot of these guys knew each other and actually knew each other really well. Like, I didn't know that, like, Logan Miller and Thomas Mann and Keir Gilchrist used to be roommates. And I had no idea oh, wow. when I cast them. And they're still best friends, right. you know. And um, obviously, I knew, like, Nick Braun and, and Mike Angarano had worked together a bunch. But I didn't know how close they were. Um, you know, I didn't, you know, at the time, you know, Chris Sheffield and Ki Hung Lee had done The Maze Runner. But I hadn't seen the movie and didn't realize that all their scenes that they have are, like, together. That they were, like, friends in the movie or, like, partners, you know. So there was all this – there was uh, – there was a lot of MTV guys in the movie with Brett Davern and sure. Jesse Carrera. And, and so there was all these connective tissues that weren't really planned. But what was great was all these guys sort of knew each other and respected each other. And so everyone and because we didn't try to separate like the guards and the prisoners or I think the only thing was that there was two green rooms. And I just it was like the one that was like slightly bigger. I was like, why don't we give the guards this one? They all ended up just playing cards together. And <laughs> I mean, there wasn't these guys had that attitude of like, OK, when the cameras roll, it's the movie. And when they're off, it stops. And, you know, some people sort of stayed in. Michael kept like his accent and kind of persona up mm -hmm. because that John Wayne thing is so ridiculous. Sure, but, right. It was actually a really fun set and kind of on purpose. And, and I know Ezra said it, that he feels like that's actually like almost a triumph in itself that we rebuilt and recreated the experiment, but didn't get drawn into it. You know, probably the most intense stuff was that stuff towards the end when Chris won't say bastard and right, does. Right. Because he really did those push-ups. And that day was just one of those. Well, that's what I was thinking when I was watching when I was watching the actually that scene. I was just thinking, geez, how are they, you know, how are they going through this? It's like this. You know, we, there's I mean, no we, body doubles. You know? Yeah, and we yeah exactly. And Chris was like, I was like, okay, how many? We talked like how many? Of course, I told all the actors to stop working out because it's the '70s and no one was bulked, and all these actors like spend all day in the gym and all this kind of stuff, you know. And so, not only did I ask him to not do that, but then to do he wanted and he wanted to do the sit-ups for real. We were like, okay, these are the angles we need. This is how many takes. He was like, okay, great. I'm gonna really. And by the end, his arms were. I think I had to ask for one extra take, and he was like, it was. But that struggle then became really sure. real and and that's his biggest scene he'd been waiting on set you know for weeks to get to that um and then but even things like with the cam like the camel humping like i didn't really block it much beforehand i knew sure. it would sort of be in the actor's heads like who would be where and who would be bent over and and all of that and everything with that we were just like like maybe like a minute before we started shooting i was like okay you go here you go here you go here i didn't even like discuss it so that they didn't even have time to get into their heads and get too deep i mean that was you know that's probably like the most humiliating stuff to shoot 
But by then we'd been together for two weeks in that little hallway and I think everyone was comfortable and we could kind of laugh, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't like laughing like frat boy laughing during that scene, but it was, it was just acknowledging that it was awkward, you know, and not, and not being, and sort of being like, okay, we're going to get through this really fast and we're going to, but I've, I've like, I've never shot a sex scene before. I feel like that would be infinitely harder. Like, <laughs> but, um, but by then I think we were having, and I think Michael was so engaged in that character and Chris was so committed and um, God and Benedict was doing something that everyone was doing so much that that was one of the, that's one of the best days I've ever had on set because we were shooting so close that we weren't moving walls or lights. Right. Um, and we were just shooting. We were like, when we did like 98 setups that day or something. And it was one of the 98? only days. Yeah. It was like at the end of the day, me and Jazz, the DP were like, oh, what do we just, but it was, we actually got ahead of schedule that day because we were just getting what we needed and everybody was on. And it was one of those, you rarely get that feeling in independent films because you're usually just managing to just get what you need and everything's kind of a struggle. So to have a day there where you're like taking your time and getting ahead of schedule just because you're actually, things are just going so well. It was a really, that's like one of the, I, I strive that feeling and what I had that day is like what I'm going to hopefully be able to bring into the next film. What does Zimbardo think of it? He's really happy with it. Um, I was really nervous about it. I mean, he was really involved. He had read the script. He had given me lots of notes. Um, he knew what he had been on set a little bit. Like he knew. And so what, he knew he knew Billy Crudup was playing. Yeah. Oh no, they'd spent a little bit of time together, and he knew what it was going to be. But even then, the reality of seeing yourself on screen can be very strange. Um, and he's not entirely a sympathetic character. No, and that, honestly, one of the reasons why I said yes was that Zimbardo is one of those people who really—he'll uh, be the first. He said it at—he said it at Sundance during the Q and A. He said, uh, "You know, a lot of people did that, did bad that week, including me." And I think that humility, and also not him realizing that the film wasn't going to be able to show the whole breadth of his career. I mean, you know, you can watch the film, and if you don't read anything else about him, jump to a conclusion about who he is. Sure. But really, this was a guy who was the president of the American Psychology Association. You know what I mean? I don't, you know, so many people will challenge. He's not a hack. He's <laughs> not a hack at all. And in fact, he's done a lot of good from this. And, um, but it's been interesting doing the press, doing the press tour with him and doing Q&As with him. People get mad at him. And he's so used to it, though, and he handles it so graciously. You know, and what I've always said, I'm like, this is just six days. Nevertheless, it's even though it's really, we stayed really true, and he says it's really accurate film. It sure feels like more than he says, six days. I know. He said it. he said it was, uh, he said at one time it was 90% accurate. And I actually feel really good about that That's number. a pretty high percentage. I think so. When you look at movies, even that we consider historical films, even good ones like, I don't know, like Lincoln or something, it's probably like 15%. If you're looking at really where those words said, where they said that way, do we have, what do those rooms really look like? We, we actually rebuilt the, the hallway is exactly the same. Some of the other stuff we couldn't afford to, but you know, I think to me, I'm really happy with 90%. I mean, I think I'd be hard pressed to find another film that is as committed, maybe to a fault, arguably, you know, I would, uh, it's fair to say, uh, to it's to what really happened as, as this one is. Um, but having said that, you know, I don't, I haven't talked to any of the guys. I mean, I don't really know any of them, the, the ones who actually went through, I mean, sure. they're, they're full grown adults now, but, um, I don't know who's seen it and who hasn't. Um, yeah, I was wondering about that, actually. You know, because we weren't really portraying them individually. Yes, we the characters, you can't, 8612's arc, you can follow. You can follow. Did you have to get their life rights? No, because it's based on on Phil's book. Okay. So we had Phil's book and life rights and Christina's life rights. Got it. And, be, and because it's the experiment, because it's been written about, it's, it's a gray area. We didn't use their real names. Got it. But also, I wasn't casting people that really looked like the real people. Like, actually, John Wayne in real life 
is actually like a pretty tall, broad-shouldered, like kind of beach blonde yeah. hair, handsome guy. Like if you looked at the photos of the experiment, you'd probably be like, oh, that's that guy's kind of like typical right. 70s California dude. And um, but I felt, well, on film, this is a guy who wasn't who he was the one guard of the three guard leaders who didn't use physical prowess to control the situation. He did it through his persona. So in fact, I'd actually like to counteract that and, and have the strongest guy in the room actually be one of the most diminutive. So it wasn't, I, you know, to me, I felt comfortable with that approach because, um, I wasn't showing, I wasn't really portraying these people, sure. you know, even though we were using some of their words and their actions, we don't see their life. We don't learn about who they are. We don't ever really even learn their full names. And so for me, I was, I was comfortable with that because I felt the whole point of the film is, is it wasn't really about who these individuals were. It was like the experiment, but not the. And it's, and it's, and it's about what they, their actions. Sure. And, um, but I would imagine, I don't know, but I would guess some of them, if some of them wrote about it or saw it, they'd probably be like, well, it wasn't that bad. I feel like they might say that because because what I, what you're doing when you make a film out of this is you're putting the camera, that's what you see the real footage of the experiment and it's distant and it's far away and it's blurry and it's the audio quality is terrible. You put a camera in there and you put music and you edit it and you chop it up a certain way. That's where the intensity is coming from, you know? So the intensity is coming, I think in the movie is coming from the performance and the filmmaking in addition to the story. But I don't know, maybe some of them would say it was exactly like that. I'm, I'm not, I, I don't really know, but, um, but you know, but the events did play out that way and people who were there did do say that it's accurate. And to me that, that that's enough that, you know, that, that I think it can, to me, I was, I always said to Phil, I was like, we're not trying to replace your book or replace you or the documentary or your studies. We're trying to coexist with them. We're trying to show a different side of this. Enhance it. Enhance it. Show a more emotional side, a little bit more relatable because everything else before this was very studious, you know, very sort of scholastic equality stuff. So before we wrap up, I want to ask about your, next what 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 is the next iteration of your impossible stuff <laughs> <laughs> well there's the thing i mentioned before that hopefully they'll be able to talk about soon it's a 35 year old script um that's beautiful it's amazing and um there's a reason why the script still exists and there's a reason why it hasn't get made because it has its challenges like stanford did um but you know i'm trying in the past i've always just put all my energy into one thing mm-hmm. and it's it destroys me because this business is move slow, you know, so you get one meeting gets delayed and then it would just like send me on this like emotional sure. downward spiral. So I'm trying not to, I'm trying to have more than just one child, you know, yeah. going on at once. Um, so that it's okay if one of them disappoints me. So there's a few things. Um, I'm really eager. If all goes according to plan, I should be shooting something next year, which, which of the few things it could be. One thing has been announced is this like teen thriller that I'm doing with, uh, uh, Peter Safran, who mm-hmm. produced Buried yep. and and uh, Teresa Park, um, and that one is you know should be coming together soon at least to get it written. There's not even a script yet, so and that one would be really different, much more genre. You know, kind of it's kind of like a teen seven is sort of the the easy way to describe it. So trying to just do different things. There's a romantic comedy I'm trying to do and uh, a, another teen romance, and there's a pilot I'm involved with. You know, so there, that's that's like a sports thing. So that's everything is kind of all so across you, the yeah, board. It is. It is all across the board. Is is there anything that you see as being like a through line in terms of what is your interest? Uh, no, I want. I really love the filmmakers. Like I love Ang Lee. I love. I love that you don't know what he's gonna do. I don't love all his films. Some of his films I love a lot, you know. But sure. you don't know if Ang Lee was like, I'm gonna go do a musical. Everyone would just sort of be like, Oh my god, that's so cool. Like, what is Ang Lee gonna go do with a musical? Like, right. I, I don't think I have that, you know, yet in my career. But I would love to have that kind of career where people just trust what you're going to do because you're always doing something interesting with sure. it. I, that's what I strive towards. So I. I 
You know, and I love that you couldn't watch a movie and know that it was his. I think that's actually a, a form of success that his language changes. You know, the language, there are some things, of course, that are connective, but his lang the language of filmmaking and Life of Pi is wildly different than the language of filmmaking and The Ice Storm. Sure. You know, a lot of other filmmakers are about, they keep, even the ones, some of my, not my favorite ones, keep their language exactly the same across the board. But I, I like the idea of sort of the material driving my point of view as opposed to my point of view driving the material. So that's why I'm trying to be really open to totally different kind of things. But if I do another true life story, hopefully just not a movie only about men. That's my, <laughs> that's my goal is to actually make something with all three of my movies have the female parts are always so much. The act, if I made a list of like the top five actors I want to work with, I bet three or four of them would be women, you know? And like, that's my, I really hope I get to get to have like more than just a few days with an actress on the next film. All right. I mean, for that matter, are any of your, what your projects you're looking at now, are any of those true life stories? Um, one kind of is, but it's a little bit more kind of how what I did with the Sedaris and COG yeah. thing, which is like taking it in its own direction. Yeah. Um, and then the others aren't. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a nice thing to, I, I, you know, it's a weird thing. Sometimes you do so much, even though the films are fictional versions, even still you're like, oh, this is worth telling because it really happened to someone. And it's really weird to change your mindset of like, oh no, this is just a stories are worth telling. I got to change it. <laughs> Being like, wait, why is anyone going to care about this? It didn't really happen. It's like, no, people don't care that things really <laughs> didn't happen. But you get so caught up into that because all three things have been adaptations. But I'm always reading articles, reading books, uh, listening to podcasts, watching you know sure. TV news stories. I'm always trying to find stuff. Uh, and some things I'm involved with now, I'm involved with as a writer and other things other people have written them. And, uh, and you know, so it's kind of all across the board. But hopefully, I'm eager to be shooting. It's been a year since we shot Stanford. So uh, it'd be, we wrapped probably about a year, for, a little, little maybe a few weeks ago from a year from now. And um, and I would love to, I'd love to be shooting again within a year. I get stir crazy after 12 months. You know? I can imagine. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for being here. This thank was you, awesome. Dana. Thanks so much. The Stanford Prison Experiment is now available on iTunes, DVD, and other platforms. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of IndieWire Influencers. And please check out our other fine podcasts, Screen Talk and Very Good TV, which are available at iTunes and our own IndieWire.com. <laughs>